Word of God, speak to us. Through the Holy Scriptures, your inspired written form. Pour down like rain and wash away anything in our heart's eyes that keep us from seeing your majesty and especially the majesty of your grace, the majesty of what it is to be loved by the maker of the universe at the cost and through the demonstration of your own son's life and death. So come, do do a miracle in these services, I pray, of awakening our hearts like we heard to marvel, to be stunned, to amaze, to be amazed at how much you love this church. I ask for your help now to be faithful to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I have two goals in this message, and they're related to each other. Both of them have to do with Bethlehem, and they both feel very big to me. One goal is to clarify a way of talking that I have used often over the years in the hope that the clarification will let it have its proper effect. Um, The other goal is that you would uh, feel strong encouragement that in the months that I'm going to be away, God loves you very much and has amazing things because of his love planned for your lives and for this church in my absence. I'll say more about that in particular next week, the last message that I'll give before I leave. I do expect him to do remarkable things, and I'll tell you why, uh, both in this message and especially next time. So those are my two goals. Clarify a way I've, I've talked about something in the past and, and to help you feel more deeply, more firmly, more joyfully loved personally, individ- individually, and, and corporately as a church in my absence. You are loved in an immeasurably great way. I'm praying that you will marvel at it before we're done. Almost always when I leave the church and go away to speak somewhere, I give messages that are the overflow of things I've done here. Uh, I don't generally make new things up to say anywhere else. I just try to apply to others what I've been thinking about and applying to you over the years. However, at the end of February, I went to Seattle, and on the way to Seattle was on the plane. We had about a four-hour flight and, and uh, prayed earnestly that God would give me a message for them. And there was in my mind churning this, this issue of how to say in a fresh way something I've said over and over again for who knows how many years. And I delivered that message three times. I gave it at Mars Hill. I gave it to urban pastors in LA. I gave it to Westmont Chapel on Monday morning. And some of you already heard it online. This is an adaptation of it because I was crafting it in my head and then trying it out on all those people for you. 
<laughs> I wanted to get it right so that when I tried to bring clarity here, uh, I wouldn't be stumbling around like I did in a couple of those messages, I think. So here's the, here's the thing that needs clarification, evidently. And this, this grows out of some conversations I've had, and those of you who conversed with me will know who I'm talking about. I appreciate them. The question is that I've asked audiences for 10 years maybe is this. Do you feel more loved by God when he makes much of you or when he, at great cost to his son, frees you to enjoy making much of him forever? I've just asked that everywhere I've gone, all over the country for 10 years or so. Do you feel more loved by God because he makes much of you or that at great cost to his son, he frees you and empowers you to enjoy making much of him forever? I like that question a lot. I still do. And I'll try to explain why. The aim of that question was never, and is not now, to deny that God makes much of us. He does, and we'll get to that shortly. The aim has been to help people relocate the, the bottom, the deepest foundation of their joy from self to God. So let me try to explain and help you understand something that makes me tick and why I speak the way I do about things like this. Why do you go around the country saying such things? Shake people up like that and cause some of them to misunderstand. And here's the bottom line. And even this, I fear, is going to be misunderstood. So I'm going to jump on a clarification of it as soon as I say it. I am more concerned. This has been true for 30 years. I am more concerned about nominal, hell-bound Christians who feel loved by God than I am about genuine, heaven-bound Christians who don't feel loved by God. Let me say it again. I don't know why, but as I just do what I feel like doing in the Word and in preaching, I feel more concern for nominal, hell-bound church-going Christians who feel loved by God than I do about genuine, authentic, born-again, heaven-bound Christians who don't feel loved by God. Okay, now lest any of you poor souls who don't feel loved by God, and there are many of you, think that means he doesn't care about us. He just said so. I didn't. I care really deeply about that issue. 
But if I have to rank who I want to jostle and bring, I want to rescue people who are totally deceived about whether God loves them or not, savingly. But I really, really care about my family, you, and whether you live at a halfway Christian life, knowing he loves you and never feeling it, and really saved, really saved, because there's that seed deep down, you die for him in a minute, and you wish, you just wish you could marvel at it more. So don't hear me saying, I don't care about that, or I'm, I don't want to invest in it. This sermon is that investment, and I hope I can do more without letting the other one go. So what I'm doing in explaining what makes me tick is try to give a perspective on why I emphasize what I emphasize. There are millions of nominal Christians who are not born again and who believe God loves them and are on their way to hell. And the difference between them and a born-again believer is what's at the bottom of what makes them happy. As you penetrate down, 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 down to, to what makes them happy and you get to the bottom, it's different for a born-again person and an unborn-again person. Millions of nominal Christians have never experienced a fundamental change in the foundation of their happiness. They haven't experienced it. They go to church for other reasons. Instead, they've absorbed the notion that becoming a Christian means turning to Jesus to get what you always wanted before you were born again. No change in what you want. No change in the bottom, the foundation of what thrills you. Just get it from a new place. The baggage in the hotel room are the same, got a different bellhop. The meal stays the same, got a different butler. And they think they're Christian. And, and they feel really loved because he's, he's producing. I'm, my life is going better. They want a happy marriage, so they turn to him to get it. They want peace of conscience, so they turn to him to get it. They want freedom from guilt feelings, so they turn to him to get it. They want escape from hell, so they turn to him to get it. And every unregenerate person on the planet wants those things. You don't have to be born again to want out of hell. You don't have to be born again to want a good marriage. You don't have to be born again to want any of those things. So what's new? Got a different bellhop, different butler, a different servant to give me what I want. I'm concerned about those people. There's some here. I would suspect in this room not, not as many as the other kind. I think God will hold me more accountable for trying to help those people wake up 
than for helping his precious children feel more of him. Though I, this sermon is about that, and I'm just setting the stage for why I talk the way I talk. I haven't even started yet. In other words, uh, they, they would say, these people I'm so concerned about, um, we have desires and we turn to Jesus to get them met. And he is so loving to meet them. No change at the bottom. No change in your cravings, in what makes you most deeply happy. No change in the decisive foundation. You just shop at a new store. That's not the new birth. It's not having, the new birth is not having all the same desires that you had as an unregenerate person and then getting them from a new source. That's not the new birth. The new birth changes the bottom, changes the root, changes the foundation of what makes us happy. Self at the bottom is replaced by Jesus. Treasuring being made much of at the bottom is replaced by treasuring Jesus. Everything changes. We don't perfectly express these changes. That's why I can be so confident that so many non-delighters are saved. What makes the born-again person glad is not at the bottom that they have God's gifts, but that they have God. There's the key way to see it. You listen for it in the way they talk, in the way they pray, in the way they speak to each other and to God about, are they most excited about his gifts or are they most excited about him? Do they long for the people they love to see him, admire him, glorify him, live in him, hallow his name? Or do they only ask for and seek uh, food and clothing and, and job and the things the world wants? It's not wrong to pray for those things. It's just what the world prays for. It's not wrong to want those things. It's just what the world wants. There's no evidence in being born again that you want what the world wants and get it from God. Christians who are truly on their way to heaven and don't feel loved by God are in a different category than that. My shorthand way of trying to help the nominal Christian wake up to their real condition and then plead for regeneration, plead for an awakening so that at the bottom of their souls is Jesus and not self, is to say, do you feel more loved by God when he makes much of you or do you feel more loved by God 
when at great cost to his son, he frees you from that horrible bondage to self in order to enjoy making much of him forever so that the, the peak of your joy is, is see him, savor him, show him. Now, all that's introduction. Today, I am really jealous that this concern of mine that I just described not undermine the immeasurable way that God loves you, including His making much of you. He makes more of you Christian, true, born-again, struggling Christian, he makes more of you than you ever dreamed he could or would. So, here's a new way I'm trying to ask the question. It's not going to work for some of you, but it might work for some of you. Because I can't make anybody feel loved by God. I can only do my best to try to capture the biblical balance that I see in the way he loves us, which I'm trying to do. So my question now is, why does God perform all of his amazing acts of love toward us in a way that reveals he is loving us for his own glory? Why does God relentlessly throughout the Bible display His amazing acts of love for us in a way that continually draws attention to the fact that He's doing it for His glory. Here's the reason that's an urgent question. And we got to get an answer to that because there are so many people I have found that when they even hear me ask that question, feel, whether they say it or not, they feel, that's just not love. <laughs> I just don't feel loved when you say that. I don't feel loved when, when you put it that way. I don't feel loved by God when He loves me for His glory. Thank you very much. I don't feel it so. So I got, we got to have an answer to that question. And I hope the answer will win some of you over not to be put off by that way of talking. They say, you say, John Piper, that he's making much of me. But in fact, he isn't making much of me if his design is in making much of me to make much of himself. Frankly, I tremble at taking those words on my lips. They are so wrong. So horribly wrong. That God is not making much of you when he makes much of you in such a way that it will make much of him is true and not unloving. 
I'm asking God to do a miracle. In fact, I'm going to stop right now and pray because we're at a point where I cannot, I cannot help you see God's God-centeredness in loving you as such that you will feel loved. I can't do that. God can do that. So, Father, I just plead with you right now that, that people who are struggling with pressing you up into the center, you to the bottom, you as the goal. Every time we talk about being loved and feel that as stripping the preciousness of being loved, that you would just knock that away. And that this kind of being loved would be felt as greater than the kind they think they want. Would you work that miracle, Father? I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to see and feel that you are more loved by God when He loves you that way than any other way. He makes more of you when He makes much of you for His sake than if He were to make much of you only for your sake. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't preach this sermon. God is making more of you when He makes much of you for His sake than if He only made much of you for your sake. More is being made of you. And I hope to show you that. Um, I argued, I mean, I said that God reveals himself relentlessly in the Bible as loving you for his namesake. Let me give you just a few examples so that those of you who may not be as familiar with this as others will get on board with me. You'll know, what, what, what are you saying? What do you mean by that? I'm going to give you four or five examples. Number one. God shows his love for us by predestining us for adoption into his family. I don't, every one of these feels like the greatest act of love to me. I want to say, this is the greatest. Well, it's probably, I want to reserve that for the cross, I think. But man, this is big. That God in eternity looked upon me, foreseeing my fallenness, my pride, my sin, and said, I want that man in my family. I'll do anything to get him in my family. I will pay for him to be in my family with my son's life. That's love, folks. That is mega, off-the-charts love. And the verse is Ephesians 1, 6. He predestined us for adoption as sons to Jesus Christ. Get that? He predestined us, us, for adoption into the divine universe-ruling family according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Does that ruin it? Does that ruin it? No. He did it. He said, I'm going to have John Piper. I'm going to have you in my family. I've decided this before the world is created. I'm having you to the praise of the glory 
of my grace. I hope that doesn't ruin it for you. I wanted to make it more, more, not less, that he did it for his glory. Number two, God shows his love for us by creating us. If we didn't have existence, we couldn't enjoy him or, or anything else. So he, he loved us into being. Why? Isaiah 43, 6, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Don't let that diminish the love of God for you and your creation, that you came into being for his glory. Number three, God shows his love for us by sending us a Savior. the angels. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. A Savior's come. Does that bother you? That they would sing that way? Instead of saying, glory to the men for whom he's dying. Glory to the women for whom he's dying. Instead they sing, glory to God. A Savior came to rescue sinners. God, 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 what a God. I just want you to get inside this so bad. We get the Savior, he gets the glory. We get the great joy, he gets the honor. Is that okay? Good night, it's okay. It can't be any other way if there's a God and a sinner like me. It can't be any other way. This is the greatest news in all the world. A Savior has come for me. And the angels are praising God. Number four, God shows his love for us when Christ died. This is probably the biggest, isn't it, in the Bible, that the death of Christ is the biggest display of the love of God. Let me give you just one verse. This is 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. Here comes the purpose clause. So that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. Christ died for me. He put himself between me and the bullet, me and the sword, me and the flames, and he took it. Though I deserved it, and he didn't. He took it. And he did that so that I might no longer live for my magnificent self and would now die and enjoy living for him forever. That's why he did it. That's love. It's a bigger love than if he hadn't done it that way. 
Number five. Oh, I just noticed in my notes here, you're going to wonder at the end if I don't say this, why, why did you read Psalm 79 at the beginning? <laughs> I read it because of one verse in it that took me a few weeks ago in my, my devotions, and it's this verse. It's verse 9 in Psalm 79. You got your Bible open and wondered, is he ever going to talk about this? Verse 9, help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for us, for our sins, for your name's sake. Born again people pray like that. Save me for your name's sake. Deliver me, atone for my sin for your name's sake. That's the way born again people think. It's all going back. It's all going back. Every grace that comes to me is being reflected back. And I love it. I love it. That's why I'm alive. This is the greatest thing in all the world that I would be rescued from immersion in Piper. Yuck! To be freed a little bit, a little bit, to just know him and love him and give it all back and let him be God for me. Number five. God shows his love for us in the way Jesus prays for us. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. So, what a Savior. He is praying for me. I think he's praying for me at this very moment in heaven. Preserve John Piper. Preserve John Piper, Father. Keep him in your love. Don't let him go astray here. Don't let him get this wrong. Don't let him become hard or soft or just... And Father, grant that he would make it home to see my glory. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Jesus died for me so that I would one day see him face to face and be satisfied. So that's what I meant when I said, why does the Bible relentlessly reveal the love of God for us in a way that constantly calls attention to the fact that it is done for His glory. Because so many people, when they hear that, feel it as not loving. With Him. The point of those texts throughout the Bible, where God performs His love for us, for His glory, is to show that He loves us in the greatest possible way. Why? How does that show that it's a greater love? How is it a greater love when he loves me for his glory than if he just loved me and it all terminated on me? Well, before I answer that question, I will, I will answer it. Before I answer it, let me dwell with you on the truth that evidently some have assumed I denied in 
asking, do you feel more loved by God when He makes much of you? Or do you feel more loved by God when He frees you at the cost of His Son to enjoy making much of Him forever? It's been assumed by some, oh, you don't think He makes much of us. Well, that's a non sequitur, which is it doesn't help at all to say that, I suppose. It doesn't follow from what I said, but okay, I don't want to defend myself. Uh, some have gotten that idea, and I would like to now fix it uh, and keep fixing it. If I, if I get things imbalanced, I'd like to get them back into balance, okay? So here we are trying to help those who heard it that way. The answer is yes, God makes more of you than you could ever imagine. And I will blow you away for the next five minutes, okay? Put, put your seatbelt on if you have trouble with being made much of by God because you might leave otherwise. Number one, I think I have seven of these, and they'll go back quickly. Number one. God makes much of us by being pleased with us and commending our lives. Alan Jacobs, I'll give you a text for that, but here's the setting. Alan Jacobs wrote a great biography of C.S. Lewis, and he, he says in C.S. Lewis's biography that the greatest sermon that C.S. Lewis ever preached was called The Weight of Glory. That is, believers will one day have a weight of glory that will be so heavy they will imagine, I I don't know if I can bear this, it's so good. What do you think the weight of glory was in that sermon? It was the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And here's what Lewis said. To please God... To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in. As an artist delights in his work or a father in his son. It seems impossible. A weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. And he's right. That's number one. God makes much of us by being pleased with us. Making us a, an ingredient, ingredient in the divine happiness like a artist with something he painted or like a father a son number 2 god makes much of us by making us fellow heirs with his son who owns everything blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the what i wonder if you believe that I do. Mine. I don't need it now, therefore, right? I don't need it now. I don't need a scrounge to get a piece of earth. 
for about 50 years and then maybe lose everything. I am very happy to belong to King Jesus, be a fellow heir of Jesus Christ who owns the universe and get my globe at death or maybe at the resurrection. And I won't mind sharing it with you. And if that's a problem, he'll make another globe. In fact, he won't have to make another globe. They're out there. So you get Quasar 10, (laughs) which is probably greener. The promise to Abraham, I'm reading another text on this point. The promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be heir of the world. Are you an heir of Abraham? You indeed are an heir. In Christ, we are Abraham's offspring, and Abraham was promised the world, Romans 4, 13. One more, 1 Corinthians three twenty one. This is the best of all, probably. Let no one boast of men. That he's trying to help Bethlehem not boast. Boast in pastors, boast in elders, boast in buildings, boast in anything. Let let no one boast in men, for, here's the argument, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Cephas or Apollos or life or death or the world or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. What an argument. These ragtag Corinthians are being told, would you stop saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, and realize you own everything. It's just a matter of time, very short time. So just, (laughs) I'm tempted to tell a story here, but I'm going to take too long. Number, Number three, number three, God makes much of us by by having us sit at table when he returns and serving us as though he were the slave and we are the master. This is the parable of the second coming that is the most unbelievable. It's Luke 12. I'll just read you verse 37. He's describing the second coming, and he says, Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have us sit at table, and he will come and serve us. What will it take to make you feel much of? feel made much of. He's, I, I, I used to think until I saw that, that parable that this, he did that on the earth, right? Last supper, bound a towel, got on, washed their feet. That's an incarnation action. But now, name above every name, he's coming on a white horse, sword out of his mouth, slaying his enemies, making everybody serve him at table. And that's not what it says. He will never cease to be our servant. We will will tremble. We will say with Peter, look at watch my feet. Get your towel off. I'm going to sit down. And he will say, no, he won't. I want to say he'll say, get behind me, Satan. But but I think probably at that point we will be sanctified enough that we we won't be satanic like Peter was. So there we are, sitting at table, shortly, with Jesus serving us. That's number three. Number four, God makes much of us by appointing us to carry out judgment of angels. 
1 Corinthians 6, verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Take a deep breath and say, why I don't think I could do that. (laughs) You will. You will. Number five, God makes much of us by ascribing value to us and rejoicing over us as his treasured possession. Two verses, Matthew 10, 30, 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. I attend to the minutest detail of a sparrow's life. You don't compare. You are, I would say, infinitely more valuable than a bird. So don't worry. I've got you back. I I won't let anything happen that's not for your good. I love you. I value you. You're coming home. I decided this before the foundation of the world. Number six. Oh, I I said there were two verses there. I said, uh, values you and sings over you, rejoices over you. This is Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You ever heard God sing? I haven't. I suppose Jesus sang a hymn when he went out into the garden. When everybody else sang, he didn't sit there quiet. But when God sings, universes come into being. The morning sings as it goes out with the sun, comes up with the sunrise and goes out. The evening sings. God's going to sing, and it's going to be a sound like you've never heard over you. Over the blood-bought bride of his son. He will lead the song at the wedding feast. Number six. God makes much of us by giving us a glorious body like Jesus' resurrection body. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself First Peter, no, Philippians 3.21. But here's the one that has captured me for all the years since I saw it. In the parable in Matthew 13.43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Remember seeing Jesus in Revelation 1? Hair white like snow, girded, brass, belt, truth, just pillars for legs. And his face, it says, were shining like the sun. And John was on his face. So will you. We would not be able to look at each other in the resurrection unless God had given us new spiritual resurrection eyes. We will be so bright. No more wheelchairs. No more depression. No more fallen countenances. No more discouragement. No more disease. No more alienation. Everything new. And your face shining like the sun. So that C.S. Lewis said, we would be tempted to bow down and worship each other if 
God hadn't given us an eyes and a heart to know better. Lastly, number seven, most amazingly, I think, maybe not, God makes much of us by granting us to sit with Christ on his throne. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down on my father's throne. I don't know what to do with that. So I'll try. Maybe Ephesians 1.23 helps. The church is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So I talked about this on Easter Sunday. The fullness, meaning, okay, we're going to sit on the throne of God with Jesus because the thrones merge. We're on Jesus' throne. He sits on the Father's throne. Now we're all on the same throne. God, the Son, and us sitting on the throne of the universe. If I put those two texts together, I think it means something like everywhere the Father extends his rule in the universe, he will do it through you. God created the world, you, for a reason. And it isn't to throw you away at the end. It's so that you would fulfill what he gave you to do in the beginning, namely to be a governor of the universe. Subdue it, multiply, fill it, enjoy it, make something of it. Now I've made you new, I'll make the world new. Now get about it, and any place I stick my hand to rule, I'm ruling through people. I'm ruling. He's going through people. So, let it be known loud and clear, God makes much of us. God makes much of his son's bride. God loves his church with a kind of love that will make more of her because he makes much of her for his glory. Now, last question, and we're almost done. The final decisive question, why does God, who loves us so much, who makes much of us so extremely, why does he remind us over and over and over again when he tells us how much he loves us and how much he's making much of us, how much he's making much of us? Why does he keep reminding us that he's doing it for his glory? To, To ruin it? No. Why does God remind us over and over that he makes much of us in a way that is designed to make much of him? The answer is, Loving you this way is a greater love. God's love for you that makes much of you for his glory is a greater love for you than if he ended by making much of you, period. If he just made much of you as your greatest treasure rather than him as your greatest treasure. If he did everything he could do to help you feel like a treasure rather than helping you feel like he's the greatest treasure, he would not love you so much. And I'll tell you why. The reason this is a greater love is that self, no matter how glorified, cannot satisfy the heart that is made for God. Let's say it again. Bottom line answer. 
The reason it's a greater love to love you for his sake and a greater love to make much of you that he might be made much of, the reason that's greater is that a self, no matter how gloriously it looks in the age to come, cannot satisfy a heart that is made for God. If he is to satisfy the magnificence of the human heart, which is made for him, he must make much of himself for you in making much of you. He will not let your glory, which he himself creates and delights in, replace his glory as your supreme treasure. He will not let your glory, which he creates and delights in, replace his glory as your supreme treasure. If he did, he would not love you so much. So, Bethlehem, I'll be away in a little over a week. And I want you to feel this. I want you to feel massively loved while I'm gone. I intend to feel massively loved while I'm away. I intend to cultivate a massive sense of feeling loved for Noel and Talitha and Karsten and Benjamin and Abraham and Barnabas, God willing. And I would like to know that here, because the Holy Spirit is coming down, there's a, a tide rising. What? How much? How much we are loved as a people. That's what I would like to know. You, Bethlehem, are precious to God. And the greatest gift he has for you is not to let your preciousness become your God. Say it again. You, Bethlehem, are precious to God. I don't know if it would be theologically overstated to say infinitely precious since he paid Jesus. But let's just say immeasurably, unspeakably, gloriously precious to God. And his great gift to you, which brings his love to its apex, is that he will not let your sense of being precious to him become your God. He will be your God forever. Let's pray. So, God, I'm still asking you that the miracle of feeling loved would happen. Happen at the South Campus right now. Happen at the North Campus right now. Happen downtown right now. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.